0: Welcome to the Draft Deeper podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. And to round out some of the different perspectives I've been trying to get on this podcast lately, if you've missed any episodes leading up to this point, I had NBA historian, NBA draft historian Matt Mauer on to help me with my mock draft and sort of give a historical perspective when we were comparing our mock drafts and things that he's seen before, things he's seen teams before, and kind of bring in that perspective, which I thought was really interesting and insightful to the audience. Um I had USA Today reporter Brian kobrowski come on, who has been able to interview some of the prospects in this draft class to give some some background about these guys, some some insight that he's gained from some of the prospects he's talked to, and to kind of give some, some draft stock updates. So we had a historian's perspective, a reporter's perspective, and I am so excited to have on today, we can get the coach's perspective, someone who does incredible work, At the box and one as well as some of his other channels and I'm going to let him plug a lot of his stuff right off the bat because everything this man does my audience out there. I hope you're paying attention and you're following him because it's one thing to talk to somebody like me who I would consider to be more of a scout. It's a whole nother thing to talk to somebody and get a coach's lens and perspective into the game of basketball. So coach Adam Spinella. I am so happy that you're joining me today. How are you doing my friend.
1: Wow, oh, Nathan, that's uh, that is an intro if I've ever gotten one. I appreciate you uh, having me on here today. Only you know a couple days left before the draft, so really excited to to dive into some of these prospects. I know there are a few polarizing names that are out there who either have a wide draft range or just skewed perspectives on what some people think of them. So really excited to dive into a couple names and provide, like you said, a coach's perspective, maybe a little bit of scouting foray into it, and just think. Uh, how I try to frame everything in the draft conversation, which is functionality and upside in the NBA. Oh,
0: you're going to knock every single aspect of what you just said out of the park. So I'm excited to to dive right in. And, and let's start with the guy who has been the, the, the quote-unquote best consensus ranking of the, the few guys we're going to touch on today. That would be Jonathan Kuminga um, has been viewed as... In- in some circles, a top five pick. You hear some scouts or, or, or personnel within the NBA talk to some of these um, media reporters, people like a Chad Ford, etc., cetera. And they, they say, why isn't this guy in contention for like the number one pick, let alone be like a top five pick. But then you go back and you see his name sort of sliding down some boards and some mock drafts of late. And I don't think it's complete coincidence i mean i've personally had my questions about jonathan kaminga throughout this entire process and i've given some of my thoughts on the podcast but but adam i want you to go into a little bit about your evaluation on jonathan kaminga and where you stand um on him today not necessarily just a little bit back when he was coming out as this perceived like top five prospect but where do you stand on him and his evaluation today I am uh, I am of
1: the firm belief that Kaminga belongs in that kind of top six or seven tier, um, not necessarily in play of leaping the top names in this class like a Mobley, Green, or Suggs, but I would I would consider him at five, um, and I don't think I would let him go past six. I just I, I really like him in that five six range talent wise, and part of the reason that I am higher on Kaminga is because I don't get hung up on the areas that he doesn't do well right now. He's one of the youngest guys in this draft class, certainly probably going to be the youngest lottery pick out there. So when we're looking from a holistic perspective about where his game should be in comparison to everybody else, it's essentially it should be a year behind just based on his age. He's jumped around teams a little bit. Uh, He's not native to the United States, so coming over here and going through a lot of that experience, is, is challenging for guys. And I think that oftentimes we overlook the off-court aspects that really go into making you know, a prospect's time inconsistent, so to speak. That comfort breeds consistency. And when you lack comfort or you're in a situation that's ever-changing or isn't natural for you, consistency can be hard to come by. So I, I look holistically at the picture around him and think that He's a guy that when you put him in a stable environment, you really work with him and coach him, he's going to get a lot better. And I don't know many 18-year-olds that can go ahead and play professional competition in the you know, NBA G League and are going to be really good help defenders. I just don't know any. So I really don't pay much attention or put much stock into his defensive struggles this year.
0: So when we when we look at some of the things that he does offensively, um, he's shown a lot of flashes skill wise of things that I think in time he's going to be able to do. But one of the reasons why you are such a valuable guest to have on this podcast, Adam, is that you're looking at things through a coach's lens as well, and you can kind of piece together what you might think are reasonable expectations for somebody like Kaminga coming into not even necessarily just his rookie year, but what you might even be able to work with him on during his rookie year and then setting expectations for what his sophomore year in the NBA might look like. Because yeah, he's he's an incredibly young player, um, hasn't been playing basketball for as long in his life as some of these other guys might be that that are in this draft class. So that also plays into account as well. But when I look at him offensively, one of the reservations that that i have is that i don't know exactly what he does well enough where from day one i'd say okay he has this bankable skill he has that bankable skill and that etc um i know he can he can attack the basket on line drives i know that he he actually has a, a pretty good spin move when when he's going to the basket as well going to his right something that we've seen from a guy like an andrew wiggins um be able to pull off to to great effect so maybe maybe that's like like one and a half to two skills but like other than that I don't have much confidence in other parts of his offensive game at this very moment so why don't you talk to me Adam about what you think uh, at least on the offensive end should be reasonable expectations coming in and why maybe that that shouldn't affect your overall outlook on what his draft stock might be right now versus what what it might not be
1: yeah, I, I I like to liken Kaminga's offensive career trajectory to that of Rudy Gay. So when Rudy came in, he was this long forward, uh, you know, pretty skilled around the basket, very athletic, but much more of a mid-range and low post guy than anything else. Athletic, but not a great three-point shooter. And it took him until eight, nine years in the league before he became consistent in those areas. I don't think Kaminga is going to take that long. I think the flashes that he showed in high school obviously didn't shoot the ball well in in the G league bubble, but I think he's a, a pretty solid three point threat. Um, you know, being somebody who can just score in a multitude of ways at at the very base is important to me. He doesn't necessarily have one. That's his signature move or area. Like you said, like spin moves thrives off physicality has shown the ability to take guys off the bounce, but doesn't do it consistently. It's more of a well-rounded game than a, this is my spot, this is my bread and butter, and what I'm going to get to. And I think NBA coaches, skill development coaches, and guys that he's working with on the assistant staff are going to help him find his signature move and sweet spot. But I like that he does back-to-the-basket stuff, which is valuable for the postseason. I like that he's pretty good facing up and taking guys either from the elbows or from the top of the key if he has a step. And that's gonna especially pop once his his three point range grows and develops. But more than anything, I love that he gets to the free throw line a ton. That's an, an alpha trait and skill that I really look for. Uh, if you're able to get to the line six, seven, eight times a game and knock down seventy five percent of them, I mean you're just you're adding five or six points right off the top there. So that's that's really really valuable to me and something that I look for for a lot of guys who are young and raw and not polished, but unafraid of driving at guys with the physical frame that they have that by the way for coming is only going to get stronger uh, but he's got the the wiring and the makeup to say he's going to be able to go out there and and get you 20 a night now the question is is he going to average 20 or is he going to average 15 and have a couple off nights sprinkled in there
0: let's talk about that that mental makeup for for a second adam because you 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 work and 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 you coach young players. Um, that that's part of what you do, and I think that's excellent. So, when when you watch somebody like Kuminga who's coming into an environment like the G League that is filled with. Um, guys who are not not necessarily in the same position as him, who are trying to just make it into the league for like a rookie season, but they they are prospects that have had all the exposure and media attention, et cetera. So they're not in the same place as some of these other guys who are struggling to get a spot in the league or in a professional league. They're trying to put food on the table for their families. They're playing from a completely different perspective. And so that's that's a level of effort a level of toughness and physicality that I don't think people quite put the, the the attention to detail into when they're evaluating the playing situation that some of these guys like a Jonathan Kaminga or a Jalen Green were involved in during that whole G League bubble experience. But you go out and you see Kaminga want the ball in his hands and he wants to make things happen for his team. He had a very aggressive attitude and he wasn't afraid of anyone he was going up against. So why don't you just, just talk to me and and tell my audience a little bit, how special that is for a guy as young as him to kind of have that mentality. And then to, to some extent, be able to carry that out and actually put some performance behind it on the court. Yeah. I mean, when
1: you're playing up certain levels of competition, you're not necessarily looking for Skill level or production, but natural traits, uh, physical attributes, things of that nature, as well as mental makeup. So I'm glad you brought it up and kind of took the the discussion in this way. You want to see how a guy responds to adversity, right? There's going to be moments that hit, that are challenging, that bring out you know the the real character. I, I always say that adversity reveals who you really are. So for a guy like Kaminga to go through a season where he shot under 25% from three and wasn't getting his shot to fall in every single way that he could. How's he going to play when he's out there? Um, He doesn't get the 100% rave reviews from Brian Shaw and the G League Ignite staff. that a guy like Jalen Green does and doesn't have the reputation of being this unbelievable interviewer and mature kid in the same way that Zay Todd, who played for the G League Ignite this past year has kind of supplanted himself to be, but you know, with Kaminga, his ability to continually drive and play and trust his game and say, I know I'm not knocking down all my shots. I have to take a few of them because I know I'm capable of making them, but he doesn't settle for jump shots. He found a way to, again, get to the free throw line, get fouled a ton, finish at the rim in in high volume. So those are things that I look for are really important in a guy, you know, don't just settle for jumpers if your jumper isn't falling. And, that first and foremost encouraged me more than discouraged me with Kaminga.
0: That is, I'm glad that you just highlighted so many different points there, Adam, because that's a perspective that, that, like I said, I don't think enough people properly put into the equation when they're scouting or, or when they're trying to project out someone's career. It's about not only where they're at, but also the the mindset that they have and the willingness that they're, they're, they're absolutely willing to step out and face adversity and ultimately overcome it, however they have to overcome it. So that has been something that's impressed me about Kuminga, and it's why that for for any of the reasons you can take a look at some of the film or some of the numbers and there are things that you might pick out in his game that you dislike now you can't count out and and let somebody with his talent at his age drop that far because of some of those mental makeup aspects that we just highlighted. So I thought that that was a very important message to, to get across to to my audience. And I'm glad that you were here to definitely can contribute to that. Did you have any other parting thoughts on, on Kuminga's game overall or any other pieces to his evaluation before we move on to another player? Yeah, I, I
1: always try to encourage people when they watch tape on things to let their eyes be what tell them, you know, how to evaluate a player, not the narrative that surrounds them. So a lot of times before any of us dive in and watch film, we either scroll through Twitter and see what the common perception is of a guy. We read an article or two and get somebody else's feel for who they are. Like there's a a solid enough scout in all of us to be able to see something, whether he's an elite level player, a mid-tier player, whatever. You can get a, a decent feel for that just by watching them with no preconceptions. So anyone out there who hasn't, div- you know, into the film yet try to eliminate your own biases you know kaminga has this label of not being a very good playmaker yet he finished with a positive assist to turnover ratio playing against pro level competition at 18 years old some people will knock him for not doing enough with the ball in his hands to create for others i see it as a massive positive that he was able to even get to that level as an 18 year old with three or four years playing experience so again, find ways to learn their backstory, but don't let it over influence what you're seeing on the floor and try to find ways to continually remind yourself of what level this player should be at. He's 18 years old playing against pro level competition. He should not look as polished as Evan Mobley or Jalen Suggs who are 20, but too often we get fixated on just seeing where he is and thinking it's apples to apples, and uh, and and I'm I'm very high on Kaminga because I'm again able to contextualize what he's been through, where he's at, and how much upside he still has in front of him.
0: You are putting on a masterclass in scouting right now, Adam, and I hope that everyone is paying attention very closely to a lot of the words and, and the way that you gave that explanation, um, the the way that you did, and, and that's honestly a perfect segue. Into another guy that I wanted to talk about, somebody who, in some people's eyes, again when we talk about biases, some people might see me as as crazy for for being as high as I am on Alper and Şengün out of, out of the Turkish league. But at the same time, you look at what he has done in, in a in a I would I would say very good, not great, but I'd say very good professional league overseas at 18 years old, and he dominated that league literally dominated. He had over a 30 PER um, 19 points per game, nine rebounds per game, shot the ball well from the field, not particularly well from, from three, but we can get into some of our thoughts as to where we think his shooting will end up, but he did shoot it well from the free throw line. Um, and and also people want to point out some of the defensive warts, and, and we'll be sure to, to highlight that and get into that conversation as well. But he also averaged almost two blocks per game and over a steal per game. So in, in theory, at least from a playmaker standpoint, he was also productive on that end of the floor combined with everything he's giving you on the, glass on both ends of the floor and then scoring out of the post, being able to set other guys up um, and make plays for others, et cetera, from that center spot. So Adam, why don't you talk to me about the the feeling that you've gotten from Shen Goon after going back and, and studying his game and, and and where you're at personally, not necessarily just letting the public consensus um, have any effect on your opinion, but where are you at personally on Shen Goon? What do you see from him?
1: I, I actually never let public perception really color how I, I view a lot of these guys. I try to- my, Scout, try my, scout my
0: friend. I love, I, it. I love I, it.
1: I try my best. I, I can't say I'm perfect with it, but I do try my best not to be influenced by the outside. Um, Dengun is going to be probably 10 or 15 years from now, one of the most interesting case studies that we can find because he's either going to prove one school of thought incredibly wrong. One school comes in from the perspective that If you are statistically able to dominate in a professional league as an 18-year-old in the same way that he has, there's basically no way you fail as an NBA player. Anybody who's gone through similar types of competition and played at those heights and produced not just statistical volume and output, but able to win MVP awards and and lead their team to a successful year, those guys don't fail. Those are the, the Jokic's, the Luka Doncic's, even maybe a little bit lower a guy like louis scola who did it when he was young in europe like there's a firm belief that that's the most accurate translation level to nba success is dominating and doing well in a professional league overseas and there's the other school of thought here nathan and that school comes from the nba functionality eye tests trying to see what big men particularly you know screen and roll fives do in the nba in order to earn themselves minutes and they block shots and protect the rim anchor defenses and drop coverage and maybe some switching and then on offense they're either great lob threats out of the pick and roll or they have pick and pop and playmaking ability where they're just fluid athletically and, and can blow past other fives shengun basically checks zero of those eye test boxes He's really, really good in a lot of other ways. He's fantastic scoring with his back to the basket. Incredibly crafty of a passer, both from the top of the key and from down low. And I think he's much more mobile than he gets gets credit for, uh, especially on the offensive end. But his strength, uh, I've heard a couple of scouts describe him as the strongest guy in that league professionally at 18 years old. And you have to think he's only going to be able to get stronger. I, I think that, on its own translates now the question becomes a modern is his game and how good does he have to be in order to offset some of the defensive concerns there are plenty of rim protectors or or big men in the nba who are not great athletes and who are offense first guys like Demonis sabonis made an all-star team this past year definitely not a good defender or rim protector but he gives his team so much on offense that he's worth it. Same for Nick Vucevic, probably the same in Brooklyn 10 years ago for, for Brooke Lopez. If you had asked me a decade ago, whether Brooke Lopez would turn into as good of a defender as he is now, I probably would have said, no, he's, he's a little bit too slow. I don't think he has a great niche in those areas. So, you know, I just, I look at Shen Goon and I think that there's enough offensive production there for him to be able to outlast and, and earn enough minutes to overcome some of his defensive deficiencies. I'm not calling him a good defender. He's not – Ennis his levels of bad. But he's certainly <laughs> – he's not going to earn any votes for first-team all-defense in his career. He just has to be really good offensively.
0: And, and, and Yeah, go ahead, Nathan. I was just going to say that that's kind of the story like around somebody like Avucevic, for example, somebody who is considered to be at, at this point like an offensive machine, because now he's gotten to the point where he's stretching the floor with such capability as well as he's making plays around him and he's making others better with his passing. Somebody that, something that I, I didn't necessarily see coming from him when he first came into the league, but it's something that he's developed and gotten better at to the point where he he has virtually no weaknesses in his offensive game, but obviously he's not the most mobile of big men himself. Um, you, you you are able to carve him up in certain ways on on defense and that's that's what we're going to see from Shen in the league, whether we like it or not. But it is a question about productivity on offense versus some of the defensive concerns. And why don't you talk to me, Adam, about how concerned exactly are you about some of the the defensive shortcomings? Because while there are clearly physical limitations, I also think he's a pretty smart basketball player. And When you watch some of the film, I think he at least understands what's going on. It's a matter of, is he going to be able to understand it just a split second quicker to where he can get a move on it and he can essentially try to beat somebody to a spot before somebody else is able to make a play on him and get to that spot. He's not going to win a foot race with anybody, but if he can recognize something's happening before some of the other players around him, then you start to see a defensive impact that may not be like really that much positive, but he can at least be hover around like average defensive impact.
1: I agree with that. I think he's first off a very good rebounder, which doesn't get talked about enough in terms of team defense. Uh, that's a, a very important skill to have. He's only six foot 10, and a lot of people hold that against him, but because of his strength, I think that's a wash. Now, certainly, he doesn't have long arms and explosive leaping where he's going to be this pinion of the glass shot blocker from the weak side. Um, but I think you alluded to this with your description of where he could eventually become. It's all about angles and discipline for a guy like Shen Goon. Uh, many NBA big men struggle initially when they come in the NBA because. The game, when you're guarding high pick and rolls and being a help defender with defensive three seconds rules, the game is no longer about can you cover ground and jump. It's all about timing, knowing when to go, and funneling guys to the right area where they have to make the play that you want them to. And it takes a while to develop that skill. That's why we've seen DeAndre Ayton really struggle for the first two years of his career and then come out of his shell. and. Be a starter on an nba finals team so shengun i i struggle with this one i'm gonna rephrase it i'm gonna phrase it in a different way nathan no we have so much discourse over the last few years about how big men should be drafted in the lottery and i've contributed to that by saying unless you're essentially a four or five tool player you 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 block shots protect the rim play multiple different schemes shoot out to three be a really good pick and roll finisher you can do all of those things you're probably worth a top 10 pick otherwise the game is so much skill and perimeter driven and just having tough shot makers that it serves you better to gamble at one of those positions when there's a replacement level player available at the big spot more times than not And that's where when we talk about guys like vucevic and sabonis and brooke lopez They've all carved out for themselves really good NBA careers, right? But none of them have really been anchors on a championship-level team until this year with Brooke Lopez. And it's debatable about how much of a, an anchor or a pillar he is on that Bucks team. So when you're trying to weigh, where do you take Sabonis Avucevic in the draft when you know you're getting a ton of offensive production, but are they the reason defensively you can never reach a championship level? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the fascinating conversation to me about Shen Goon in terms of his draft range. How many other guys on the perimeter in terms of their upside have to automatically leapfrog him, no matter how high I am on Shen Goon's offensive production, because it's simply how winning basketball is formulated. And I think the safe realm for me is somewhere around the like 9 to 11 range. I would say you can probably expect in a good draft like this, where I think there's a, a very good group of top-tier talent, you can probably expect two, three, or four other guys to slide in there and perform at a level better than what a Vucevic or a Sabonis might get you, or at least that are worth the swing on. So I have Shengun at 10 on my board. It's It's not necessarily that I don't think he can be an adequate defender. He can gain the discipline. He can gain the angles. And I believe so much in his offensive ability that I think he'll end up offsetting some of those concerns, but how does it impact winning basketball? Like that has to be the first question that we always ask. And and that's where I would get really skittish about taking him over a Kaminga or you know, putting him right outside that top group and putting him at that seven or eight range.
0: So the last question, Adam, that I'll ask you about, shengun because you just hit on so many great things i think you covered a lot of bases with that explanation but you you are a coach and 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 being that you understand how fit is so important to a player's career and what it can be and how does that player fit with the not only the the players that he has around him but what the team wants to do in general so when you look around the NBA landscape, not necessarily talking about the ranking or the number attached to Dushengun to on a big board, but where where what do you think is like the best fit for him to get the most out of him career-wise when you're looking at some of the teams in, in the lottery range, or if you feel that there's even a better fit outside the lottery, what do you think might be the best fit for somebody like him who is so unique?
1: So in looking at that, like, eight through 16 range uh, let's just call it right there because i think that's a high-end outcome for shangun on draft night Yep, i would say that there are a couple teams i steer away from one of which is charlotte because i know they need a big man so to speak but they're definitely going to be much more in the lob threat for lamello ball protect the rim defensively uh, type of, of framework there so I, I don't like Shangoon in 11. I think San Antonio always does a good job developing players and is one of the most patient organizations out there. Um, looking at Indiana and Golden State, probably not great fits just because the Warriors took Wiseman and are a little impatient. And Indiana mm-hmm. already has their defensive uh, liability in Sabonis up front. So wouldn't mind Sacramento. I wouldn't mind... Know, Oklahoma City, uh, I think San Antonio is clearly the best fit for him. But at the end of the day, it's just whoever's going to be willing to build around him and, and live with knowing that he's the guy you have to defensive game plan around him with.
0: Why do you think San Antonio is the best fit for him? Because I, I agree with your last two. I think those are the two best possible fits. I would actually think that Oklahoma City might be the best fit for him because I think that when you look at how good that team or lack thereof, how bad that team was in so many different areas last year. But where they really need help the most and what Shen strengths are, I think that he may actually be able to help them the most from day one. But why might San Antonio be the best fit, in your opinion? So one of the reasons I'm I'm really high on
1: him in San Antonio is because of the role players and pieces they already have in place. Jontae Murray, Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell, I think are... T- Three really good long physical guys, particularly Murray and Vassell, have you know NBA all defensive potential. Putting them on a perimeter, switching one through four, and applying ball pressure with their length is going to limit the amount of drives that a team has to the rim. It's essentially the inverse of what the Utah Jazz do. You know, they build a lot of their roster around knowing they have the best rim protector in the game and Gobert, and they sacrifice athleticism or defensive talents one through four. In favor of offense. And they say, well, if you pressure the ball, if all else fails, Gobert standing behind the swat the shot. It's the opposite in San Antonio. They've got four and could have four really solid perimeter defenders that are switchable and apply pressure and keep their man in front to the point where you're limiting the amount of times that Shen Goon is put in a tough situation with with one on one drives towards him.
0: I think it's a great chance that he certainly ends up in in one of those two locations, and I think it 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 comes back to how high a team is willing to to gamble a draft pick on him, and that's pretty much where I'm at with that conversation. But we covered a lot of good with, with Shen Goon. Adam. Again, you are you are giving a masterclass on on all of this, and I'm so so happy to have you on, and, and you're teaching me as we're doing this as well. Um, I we're gonna move to a guy next to Adam. I want you to teach me. Uh, about this guy and why you may or may not. I personally don't know how high you are on Josh Giddy, but I want you to teach me about um, some of the things and some of the insights you gained about watching him and and studying him a bit. Because if there's like a few guys, we could pinpoint a few guys in this class that I've struggled to to evaluate. One would be um, Roko Prakashian, who we'll, we'll save him for another day. But Josh Giddy is another guy um, who who will be in this draft class who I have struggled with evaluating because... I don't know, I don't have the answer to if he's a point guard or not. Um, I see the, the main popular comparison out there for him nowadays is like this Joe Angles type of versatile forward who can initiate offense and then when he doesn't have the ball in his hands he can at least stretch the floor and shoot well enough off the catch where he's keeping defenses honest so he's at least always having some kind of role within the offense but there's so many people who want to call Josh Giddy a point guard because of what he did for Adelaide this past year and I don't know if a lot of those same strengths translate to the same way in the NBA game so So this is why getting a coach's perspective might be beneficial here, Adam, because when coaches are looking at the game and they're figuring out how to position players on the floor to, to better help themselves, as well as their teammates, they're not always concerned about positional fit. They're not always attaching a positional label to a player. They're looking at who can initiate offense, who is the best person to have in charge of the offense with the ball in their hands and who's going to set us up best to succeed. And and maybe when you look at it from that perspective, maybe Josh Giddy fits into that mold really well and that's a case that that Chuck made to me on his podcast when he had me on chucking darts so why don't you talk to me about Giddy Adam and, and what you see from him and what you think he can be in the NBA
1: all right so i am lower than most on giddy i have him just okay. outside my top 20 i think he's 21 or 22 on my board um, i mocked
0: him to the lakers at 22 and i did my mock draft so that that might fit pretty well
1: Fair enough. Yeah, we're we're aligning in terms of of talent available. Um, oh, I, I like what you said about position and skill. Like, I don't really use positions to describe how guys are on offense. I think it's really about who you guard. And the collection of skill at any size nowadays is so fluid and versatile that your position can't fit into the same box it did 20 or 25 years ago with your smallest guy is your ball handler and offensive initiator, your biggest guy is Anchored down by the block, et etc, so uh, when it comes to giddy himself, really big fan of his IQ and his passing ability, uh, makes fantastic reads, manipulates help defense, is able to see over the top of the D because he's a six foot eight tall guard, was played essentially at the one or the two for his team at Adelaide this year. So having the ability to manipulate defenses at eighteen years old, I think is really rare. Um, the, the knock on giddy for a lot of people is the jump shot and he did not shoot it well from three started to get a little bit better towards the end of the year, but it's stiff and robotic and not a very fluid looking shot. I'll give you two reasons, Nathan, why that contributes to being a little bit lower on giddy for me. Um, -hmm. the first I I was able to do a a podcast with Fran Fraschilla last week, unbelievable basketball. mind.
0: One of the goats. Oh, the absolute
1: legend! And uh, and when we were talking on air, he he mentioned that I'd asked him the questions about what he thought were the easiest skills to teach at the NBA level and the most difficult. He thought the easiest thing to teach was a guy who's a really good, you know, basketball player just to make and roll reads. At the NBA is a a skill driven lead league. He feels comfortable, and he knows others and many coaches feel comfortable that they can get a raw player and teach them how to exist and make high-caliber reads out of the pick-and-roll at the NBA level. But vice versa, the hardest thing to teach was three-point shooting. Reworking someone's mechanics is a crapshoot, and there's no doubt that you would have to do that with Giddy. So what he's already so advanced and good at is a chance, a likely chance, you could find somebody who doesn't have that talent already and teach it to them. Vice versa, there's a chance because what he's not good at is really hard to improve over, or at least to predict how guys are going to improve. It's hard for me to put all my eggs in the giddy basket. The other part of this, and, and you know, I promise there was a part two, uh, it can roll ball handling to me, especially in the postseason. The one thing you cannot do is be unable to shoot off the bounce. Because if you can, you're going to get what I call the Rajon Rondo treatment. Teams are going to go underneath ball screens, dare you to shoot, and never let you get a step on your own defender into the lane. Because what causes help defenses to collapse is when you beat your own man off the bounce. And great passers are able to pick that apart as soon as a help defender takes a half step or even thinks about rotating towards them. That's what elite passers do. And I think Giddy has elite passing potential. But without the ability to hit shots off the dribble, teams will go underneath ball screens, He'll no longer get the advantage and help defenders can stay home. I don't think he's a skilled enough scorer in the mid range to overcome that, nor does he have the ability just based on his mechanics to consistently stretch it out to three. So I worry about those things. I think a, a six foot eight ball handler and and playmaker is still valuable in the nBA that's why I still have him as a top twenty five prospect right I yep. think there's a, a real first round player in there and certain upside that's worth swinging on, but I'm, I'm not very optimistic that the shot ever really comes around.
0: So then you and I have pretty much the same concerns on him. And, and when I've talked about Giddy to other people, I've said, well, I'm not confident how Giddy's going to be able to score the basketball in the NBA when he sets foot in the league. Like, not only am I not confident in some of the jump shooting on him that you talked about, but I also don't think he's He's a good finisher around the basket. Part of that is that um he, he's not the strongest person right now at his size at six eight. And that certainly contributes to it. That's something that will get better as he's in the league. But I also don't think he has particularly good touch around the basket either. So when you when you look and you find issues with his scoring from all three levels on the floor, that just strikes me as one giant red flag. Now, if he shores up two out of those three areas on the floor where he can at least reliably score from or, or uh, efficient enough, then that wipes away some of those offensive concerns. And then he's able to leverage a lot of his other passing gifts much, much easier within an offense. But when some people talk about like they want to mock him to like Golden State, for example, well, you look at Golden State last year and Steph and Draymond would just stare at themselves and discuss sometimes because they would do all of this work to set somebody up for an open corner three. And they had guys like Wiggins and Oubre who weren't knocking those shots down with consistency. And they're just like, man, how many offensive possessions are we wasting? And then how much more work do we have to do to carry out the set? And then ultimately create something for ourselves because we might not trust our teammates to knock down those shots. And like, I get some of those same vibes from giddy. Like, If he went to somewhere like Golden State, if he's not going to have the ball in his hands the entire time, that's going to be a lot of Steph and Draymond's responsibility. So if Giddy's spotting up in the corner or on the wing, like, do you trust him to to hit that open shot or even do something off of the bounce, attack a closeout, and then be able to finish properly around the basket? Like, I don't. So like, talk to me, Adam, about how a, a potential lack of trust in his offensive game from a scoring perspective might play into how teams might view his role when he's coming into the league and how that might help or or, or in all likelihood potentially hurt his, his development and his impact if he's put in the wrong role. That's a,
1: it's a fascinating question on the golden state point. I think a lot of people try to compare his potential role there to that of Sean Livingston, right? Another tall, like creative pass first guy, but Livingston was a super strong and B had every trick in the book in his in his regard so you know, i'm not so sure that uh i'm not so sure that giddy ever gets to that point because it took a lot of craft for livingston to get there yep. but uh, i think of off the dribble shooting and stationary like catch and shoot from the corners as being two very different skills mm-hmm. um, pull-up shooting is about fluidity of mechanics strong feet being able to to turn your hips have good hip mobility and get yourself aligned towards the basket and do so in a, a quick manner. Uh, catch and shoots, depending on who you play with, the scheme that you're in, where you're standing, et cetera, you may have more time to get shots off. Like Brooke Lopez, you could do a stopwatch for for his shots and, and probably go grab popcorn <laughs> from the time he catches it to the time it makes it away to the basket. Um, so you don't have to be the quickest release guy in order to be a solid catch and shoot threat. Now- It's also dependent on who you're guarded by because smaller guys and quicker defenders cover more ground on their closeouts, leaving you less time to get your shot off. If Giddy is going to be positioned more as like a point wing in a Kyle Anderson type of mold, where he can have a little bit of creative time, but also plays off ball, he may have a little bit more time to get his shot off, uh, but not a ton. And I don't hate his catch and shoot mechanics that much. I mean, his He's starting to speed it up, which is important. His knees do cave in a little bit and bow when he when he catches it, which I don't love for attacking closeouts. It's something that I commented on a year ago with Tyrese Halliburton, right? Like guys who are kind of funky formed and have those bow-legged releases don't maximize their first step if they get run run off the line. Um, I don't think that's an overwhelming concern with Giddy because he doesn't shoot it well enough to get run off the line, but. If he ever develops that type of game, that's when it matters, the bow legged stuff. So until then, if he's up to 35, 36% and his knees cave in, I'm all for it. As long as it's consistent and he's able to knock it down every time. So again, I'm not overwhelmingly negative on Giddy finding a role as a role player. The best maximization of who he is, no doubt, is playing with the ball in his hands. And at Adelaide, he was able to do that, not only because he was one of the most talented guys on the court worth catering around. Because he played in an unbelievable scheme that was pretty much able to get him on the move with the ball in his right hand downhill any chance he wanted and through traffic so that guys couldn't necessarily make those quick decisions to go over or under a screen. It, It really maximized who he is.
0: You give me some confidence in my scouting abilities, my friend, because you you and I have hit on a lot of similar points and things that we're seeing through these three guys. So I want to see, well, we touch on this last guy and you and I were talking off air that there might be a few other names that come up in in his discussion. Um, I want to see if we go four for four here a little bit. So you you came out with a piece today. We're, we're recording this on July 26th. Um, you came out with a piece on Austin Reeves today. And and I feel that it's timely because over the last like two weeks, um, there's a little bit after the combine. And then especially over the last two weeks, you see Austin Reeves name popping up in some of these like top 40 type conversations. He's an older guard. Um, he He's a very interesting evaluation for me from the standpoint of you just did a fantastic job of breaking down the differences between pull up shooting, catch and shoot, from behind the three-point line, how they're, they're different types of shots. They're, they're, they're just different, right? They're not the same. It, Reeves has, hasn't has been a good three-point shooter in his career, but where, where he really finds his bread and butter is in these pick-and-roll situations where he's ultimately able to create enough separation where he can step into one of these mid-range jump shots, one of these mid-range pull-ups, and that's the shot that he's really most efficient at. Um, Anything outside of that range, he struggles to hit with efficiency, Um, but I don't necessarily see him as this incredibly crafty finisher around the basket either. He has really good size for for the guard spot that he'd probably play in the NBA, but I have some of these other questions with, with his scoring ability and how he impacts the game. From an offensive standpoint, unless you're purely having him come in off the bench and just, you know, run pick and roll sets for your second unit. And that's kind of really how you would have to accentuate some of his strengths. So he he's just like this really unique guard to me. And, and I don't know how to properly process that in my evaluation. So why don't you talk to me, Adam, about where you're at on somebody like an Austin Reeves and maybe give some of your background explanation as to how you might see him with some of these older guards when we're talking about older players because there's a bunch of them that pop up in this year's draft discussion.
1: Yeah, they're they're almost two separate conversations, right? How do you draft for age and and what is Reeves kind of like as a prospect that would put him in a higher or lower category yep. to be considered for that. So we'll talk about Reeves first, you know, six foot six scorer from Oklahoma. He transferred uh in college. He spent two years at Wichita State where he came in as a freshman kind of at the same time as Landry Schammett. So if you're asking for how old a guy is and why that that is relevant for this conversation, he came into college the exact same time as Landry Schammett for the same team. Um, Reeves spent two years in much more of an off-ball catch-and-shoot type of role at Wichita State. He was really good at it. He was about 47 or 48% from three on his catch-and-shoots over those two years did so well that he transferred up to Oklahoma. And Lon Kruger, who I believe is one of the five best offensive coaches in college basketball, really maximized who he was with the ball in his hands. And as a junior coming into the Big 12, transferring up a conference and kind of a different tier of of athlete, and going from being a spot-up role to doing a lot more with the ball in his hands out of the pick and roll, Reeves' efficiency numbers tanked. He did not shoot it well from three, either in a catch-and-shoot or a pull-up type of role, uh, but was on such high volume that you had kind of promise and knew there was a good player in there. And this year, he solved some of his efficiencies, not all of them, but some of them. For example, he, low volume of catch-and-shoot looks, but he was up close to 40%. So he has proven to me three out of his four years that he's able to be an effective off-ball type of player. I find that appealing when you're 6'6". That you can come in and be somebody who plays out of the pick and roll and creates, but also has off-ball, you know, upside to you. Um, then there's the fact that he doesn't consistently knock down those shots at three. He's proven that he can, but he doesn't make them consistently enough. So if you're not going to be a knockdown three-point shooter out of the pick and roll, you've either got to be an unbelievable creator for others, or very very crafty in the mid-range and at the rim. I don't think that he's ever going to get to the Devin Booker, Chris Paul levels of mid-range efficiency. <laughs> and I'd certainly question his explosiveness and ability at the basket, uh, especially kind of, of taking physicality and contact. He's, he's a little bit slender of a 6'6", let's say. Doesn't have the, the greatest bounce. Plays really hard, but I don't think that he's a finish-through guy's type of athlete. Um, that's kind of my, my scout on him. I, I struggle seeing him defending the point of attack. The next level so you really have to buy into the offense in order for him to have a, an nba caliber role and that leads into the the draft discussion based on age right yep. like when when you have a second round pick you're pretty much in one of two camps the first camp is i need to get the best upside here that i can and develop somebody because our team is young and hopefully this guy turns into a, a really good steal and find for us but there's so much risk involved that he's not worth a first round pick right now, despite us knowing he has talent. The other kind of second round pick, which is a much more proven commodity, typically goes to a team that is in championship contention and says, Hey, if all else fails, and we need to have some of our two way contract guys come in and play 16 to 24 minutes a night when everyone's injured and banged up and just get us to the finish line and, and maybe play a, a patch up role you at least know he's a good enough basketball player to do something to that nature in the NBA. I think Austin Reeves fits into that category. He's very similar in terms of his usage and what he might turn into. Sam Merrill, who came out last year out of Utah State. Obviously bigger Merrill, and Merrill was a much, much, much better shooter. But this break break glass in case of emergency, two-way contract, end of bench guy, and he got a ring this year in Milwaukee, and I think he helped them in a couple games, and, and found ways to be, you know, a valued fourteenth man on that roster. But you have to be in win now mode, in my opinion, in order to consider taking a twenty-three year old guy. So we spend so much time, and and I, this is back to the Kaminga debate for me. We spend so much time talking about what guys look like now, diving into the film and seeing who they are as players, and not as much time. Thinking about where on their developmental trajectory they are. A guy like Austin Reeves, a guy like Sam Hauser out of Virginia, who's a really, really good three-point shooter, over 40% all four years that he was in college, like really good three-point shooter. He's 23, six foot seven, six, eight, and really stiff. There's not much bloom left on that rose. So you have to feel really comfortable in knowing we can put him in a position to succeed if he gives us spot minutes. And we just need him for a couple years, and, and aren't banking on this turning into the home run pick. That doesn't mean Reeves can't ever turn into a starting level player in the NBA. We've we've all been wrong on that before with different guys. Yep. But you don't you don't draft him with that expectation. You draft him saying, "Hey, I need the guy twelve through fifteen who can just come in and play if he absolutely has to." Reeves certainly checks that bucket to be in in the second round conversation. Now I think there are probably forty five guys or at least high enough upside in this draft that I would certainly take above anybody in those win now molds in the second round. Uh, But I'm not overwhelmingly high on Reeves just because I I think he's really going to struggle guarding NBA level athletes.
0: Adam, this was one of the favorite podcasts of mine that, that I've ever done because you brought such incredible perspective and you taught me, so much on the podcast and I could never thank you enough for that because that's what it's all about right it's about helping each other get better at understanding the game that we love which is basketball it's something I preach on this podcast all the time so I'm a bad host I said that I was literally going to let you plug all your stuff at the beginning and we kind of just dove right into everything because I was just so excited to talk to you so Adam I want you to plug everything that you're doing and all the places where people can find you because they need to you're excellent.
1: Nathan, thank you for that, and I appreciate you having me on. It Was a great conversation, and, and you do a phenomenal job with with the pod and with your your channel and your content out here. Um, those listeners can find me most predominantly on YouTube at my name Adam Spinella. Been pumping out a lot of different mock drafts, um, NBA scouting reports on guys, which we aim to to do strengths and improvement areas at least three on every prospect that uh, is basically being considered for a top forty-five or fifty selection in this year's draft do a lot of stuff on twitter at the box and one underscore and all of our writing samples that go along with video breakdowns and further analysis is at the weebly dot com uh, beyond that you know at this point in time i think it's close to vacation once draft night gets here <laughs> we all check out for a little bit and take a deep breath before summer league begins and we get the early returns on on how we uh, we fared in, in evaluating some of these guys, but again, Nathan, thank you for what you do. Appreciate you having me on, and you are, as always, far, far, far too kind with uh, with your positivity towards me.
0: We we are going to be taking a little bit of a break once the draft is over at Draft Deeper. I can promise you that. Not too long. We we got to give the people what they want. We got to take a little bit of a break here. It's been a, a long scouting cycle, but um, truly a, a fruitful one, and I've learned a lot through it. So. Thank you, everyone out there who listened to this podcast, who took the time out of your day to listen to this and support us. If you haven't already, please follow us over at at Draft Deeper. I I said to Chad Ford that I was going to give him a shout out on my next podcast, and I'm going to do this right now because... He retweeted when when I put something out about potentially getting some more followers over on the account before the draft came on, and to meet a goal of mine that I had, he took the time to to retweet that and, and put his own message on it. So, um, Chad Ford, to one of the pioneers in this industry, someone who's allowed us to to pursue this type of path in, in in scouting through through a media type lens, thank you so much for for what you did for 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 me and my platform. I could never repay you. Uh, my, my, my good man. So thank you for all of that. Please follow us over on Twitter at Draft Deeper. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get it. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and stay tuned. We will have enough content out certainly this week before our live draft show, which we will be doing on Thursday on our YouTube channel. We will start that show at 7.30 Eastern time. Again, that will be me. That will be Matt Maurer, our, our resident NBA draft historian. And that will be Jordan and Jonathan Edis from the Assisted Development Pod. I am excited for that live draft show. I can't wait for draft night to finally figure all this stuff out. And then I will also be giving reactions after that. We will have that podcast on the feed a day or two after the draft takes place as well. So stay tuned this week for more content from us. Thank you all again for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your week.